Welcome to the Pod Control Podcast, brought to you by Red Hat. Pod Control is your source for containers, Kubernetes, OpenShift, and all things cloud native. Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome back to the Pod Cuddle Podcast. It is good to be back. And today, you know, one of the things we always said uh, about this year was we're going to spend about half our time on community topics for around Kubernetes, and we're going to spend about half our time uh, digging a little deeper on OpenShift. And for those of you that have been following OpenShift, obviously, uh, you know, a big thing for us has been all of the work that we've been doing, um, you know, not only about keeping up with the new things happening in Kubernetes, but all the work that we've been doing in terms of integrating a lot of the core OS technologies. And that's obviously going to uh, materialize in OpenShift 4. Um, some people have already begun beta testing and, and trialing OpenShift 4. So really wanted to dig into that today. And uh, the best way for us to do that is to to bring back sort of our, our two leads on the project on, on OpenShift and, and the folks who have really been around this for the longest time. Uh, so Clayton Coleman and Derek, uh, Derek Carr, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. Good so, to be here. So guys, um, it's been a little while since you've been on. Um, so for anybody who doesn't know the two of you and, and maybe doesn't know the extent to which you guys have been involved with Kubernetes literally since you know way back in the day in, in 2014, 2015 days. Give folks a sense of um, you know what your involvement is now in the community because you guys are both still very much in leadership roles in SIGs and working groups and, and obviously leading architecture and development at, uh, at Red Hat. Sure. So this um, it's actually been interesting this last couple of years. Um, I've tried to deliberately step back from a lot of day to day of you know helping steer features and you know focus on that project level, um, whether it's SIG architecture or the steering committee, trying to make sure that we we hold this community and project together that we're doing right for the users uh, that you know the companies and the individuals who are part of Kubernetes are. You know, working harmoniously together. And so while I do spend you know, a fair amount of time reviewing and um, occasionally sending some bug fixes for stuff that's driving me up the wall, I do try to um, look at it from the meta view of where, you know, how do we keep the Kubernetes community successful and healthy um, over the long term, 5, 10, 15 years from now? Yeah. And so like Clayton, I've been involved with Kubernetes since uh, its very earliest days. And um, Similar to Clayton, when Kubernetes was just forming, uh, it was very deep on getting PRs out, features in, and to make the platform uh, a viable base for further growth. I think like Clayton, uh, myself, I'm interested these days in trying to level up others in the community and those at Red Hat and their ability to contribute to the community. And so whether that's uh, working on the steering committee or helping shepherd things in Signode, um, trying to do our best to keep this thing sustainable. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that, uh, as we, as we transition from, from OpenShift three to, to OpenShift four, um, you know, one of the big kind of cornerstones of, of three, and this is something that kind of evolved, um, as we went from, from three O and, and, you know, the technology evolved, but also as we worked with more and more companies. And, um, obviously when you work with the enterprise, you, you rarely ever get a green field. So you, you have to be flexible enough to work in their environments. Um, so OpenShift three has always been somewhat of a modular composable platform. It, you know, it has some opinions, but it also had some, some modularity and pluggability. Um, how, how do we see kind of the, the flexibility versus opinions um, kind of evolving or staying the same in, in four? And, and are there some new technologies that are going to make that, uh, you know, easier to manage and, and easier to work with the communities and, and with customers? You know, if I had to, if I had to articulate 
what we're trying to do. We're trying to make life easier for operations teams. You know, that hasn't, even though the technology changes at the end of the day, you know, you have a lot of software, you need to run it. Um, you know, part of the focus of OpenShift on developers was, you know, the biggest pain point between the dreaded developers operations split is the developers just want stuff to run and the operations teams want developers to stop changing things. And neither one of those things is ever true. So we have to, you know, Kubernetes is Kubernetes and OpenShift um, are the latest evolutions of the tools that make that easier. There's plenty of other tools in the ecosystem. A lot of what we've tried to do is go back to fundamentals. You know, Kubernetes has grown up a little bit. It's extensible. Uh, It solves a lot of use cases. There's still plenty of work that needs to be done in Kubernetes uh, and in the ecosystem around it. And we, Derek and um, many of the others uh, on the OpenShift team, we kind of, we took a step back and we looked at how do we bring these pieces together so they're composable and flexible but the end goal really is the stuff just needs to to work and so we looked at a couple of areas we wanted to take advantage of um, the cloud technologies uh, the the platforms that we run on top of Uh, we talk a lot about um, you know hybrid cloud which really to us means your software runs the same way no matter where you're going so you have a little bit of flexibility um, both as a developer because people can build tools on top of that standard platform and those tools work anywhere. You don't have to um, redesign your deployment tools uh, for different uh, data centers or different environments or different uh, software targets. But we also, we want to offer that standard platform, take advantage of the clouds where we can, right? There's silly not to, to leverage um, the APIs that the public clouds give us. We want to make updates um, easier, transparent, reliable, uh, it should be something that's kind of just a no big deal. And we want to you know, set the stage for where, you know, if Kubernetes is now extensible and we can, we have accomplished many of the goals about being composable and flexible. How do we, how do we make that complexity and flexibility manageable? So if there's this giant ecosystem of tools out there, um, which ones do you run? How do you get updates for those? How do you, um, how do you ensure that, all this stuff just keeps working and you don't really have to think about it day to day. You think about the things that you really want to talk about deploying applications, um, you know, meeting your SLAs, um, keeping your developers from getting pitchforks and, and uh, just moving to the cloud and doing whatever they want. So it's this, it's this tricky balance of we want to have the flexibility, but we want to make it so that you don't have to think about it most of the time. Yeah, no, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. And it's like you said, there's always this ongoing tension between developers who want to, uh, you know, basically be making changes to the software, adding new things, adding features and, and, and operations who would like things to be as, uh, you know, limited change, low risk as possible. And that's, that's ultimately the tension in, in software, but it's also the tension that is kind of deciding, you know, business winners and business losers. If, if companies can, you know, respond to their customers faster, collect data faster and so forth. So, um, you know, it's, it's the, the challenges of, of the business side of software and the infrastructure side of software have have definitely merged together. Um, You know, Derek, I know you've been involved with a lot of different parts of Kubernetes. Obviously um, things evolve over time. You mentioned, you know, we've been involved with this since 14 and 15 and um, you know, early on it was try and get Kubernetes to work, um, try and make it stable. Um, We've obviously learned a lot, but we've added a lot of things as we've been talking about making it more extensible, um, Kubernetes, learning about Kubernetes. Can you can you start to talk to us about what are some of the things 
um, that have evolved over time in Kubernetes that we're now going to make, um, you know, so really take advantage of to, to do those things around automated operations to make it simpler? Um, you know, what, what are some of the, those underlying core technologies maybe that people should be studying about or reading up on um, as we evolve the platform? Yeah. So I think the best way to look at this question is like um, uh, early Kubernetes days, we were looking at just getting more and more workloads to be able to run on the platform, stateless workloads, stateful workloads. Uh, and then around, you know, Clayton, you might correct me. I want to say around the Kubernetes one six time frame. Um, once you start getting workloads who can run on the platform, you start to question, well, what is the best way to lifecycle? What is the best way to lifecycle these workloads uh, over time? And around that time at Red Hat, we started working on uh, improving with the broader community what had been third-party resources into what's now custom resource definitions. And if you think about what the CoreOS team was doing, they were trying to look at how can we leverage custom resource definitions to develop this operator pattern to better, better manage Kubernetes itself, right? So Kubernetes is nothing more than just a distributed application platform, right? It's a handful of binaries that work together to achieve your desired output. And each of these discrete parts of the Kubernetes architecture need to be lifecycled, right? Your API server needs to have certain constraints and lifecycling uh, characteristics. Same with the controller manager, the scheduler, and your kubelets. And so all the same patterns that we've been trying to build for customers to run and manage their own applications on the platform, if you take a step back, you start to ask yourself, well, why why can't we manage Kubernetes that same way, right? And so what we've been doing at OpenShift 4 is looking at the discrete parts that make up the Kubernetes architecture and ask, how can I better lifecycle this? And how can I uh, provide more reliability to the system by following Kubernetes native patterns, right? So rather than just always thinking I have my API server set up one way and it's going to be correct, always reconciling that it's never skewed, right? So following all those great patterns that people love about Kubernetes generally and asking how do they apply to managing Cube itself. And so that, that works great for core Kubernetes, right? You have an API server, controller manager, et cetera. But when people look to actually like operationalize Kubernetes, there's more than that, right? Kubernetes is a platform builder, but not the platform itself. And so your platform needs to include an operating system to run your workload, a monitoring platform, a logging solution, all these things that are needed around your application that Kubernetes itself doesn't provide for you out of the box. And so what we've done in four is we've not just written operators to manage the core lifecycle of the Kubernetes components that lets us update them over the air, but also operators to manage these essential elements of the platform itself, your monitoring stack with Prometheus, um, your logging solution, your uh, registry solution, et cetera, et cetera. And we've gone a step further and looked at what the CoreOS team and said, you know what? Why is managing your OS any different than managing other aspects of the platform? And in fact, there's a lot of benefits around upgrading the platform as an atomic unit. Uh, and so we've gone and built infrastructure in OpenShift v4 to allow you to uh, upgrade your operating system using uh, uh, Red Hat Core OS uh, in the same manner that you update your control plane and core Kubernetes itself. So what we think about what we've done in v4 is we've just said, how do we bring everything under management of the cluster so that the cluster is the core thing who's directing change and all following Kubernetes data patterns. And then once we do that, we bring everything about the cluster under management of the cluster itself. We can then very easily manage uh, over-the-air updates of that cluster so that customers and users are always taking advantage of the latest and greatest stuff that's available and the trust that our update systems are keeping them up to date and out of skew. 
Yeah. So that's kind of how I look at what we've done. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. I know sometimes visually I, I kind of explain to people that, you know, in, in three, there was kind of three distinct things that people had to, to set up and manage. And, you know, it was, it was kind of your, your hosts and how your hosts interacted with the cloud, that layer, you had the, the platform itself and Kubernetes and then, and then your applications on top of it. And we've really uh, kind of consolidated those bottom two pieces of a stack, if you will, like you said, so that, um, you know, we can, we can take advantage of what Kubernetes understands as a distributed system. And, and also, you know, Kubernetes knows a lot about its underlying resources. So why not make those two things be, uh, you know, be more, be more together? Well, and I'll add, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a certain amount of putting your money where your mouth is. So, you know, one of our, one of the things that I'm really proud about what we did with OpenShift was, um, we believed in Kubernetes before most other people did. Um, we invested in it before anybody else besides Google really did. And, you know, in that we, you know, we, we found we were able to bring those benefits to users and customers. We were able to make Kubernetes easier to run in the early days of OpenShift. We focused on developers. We added multi-tenancy. I think there's a certain element of what we're trying to do now, which is, okay, we've said Kubernetes is the best place to run stateful and stateless applications. Prove it. And that proof is not just the testimonials of everybody out there running stuff on top of Kubernetes, but you know, let's use Kubernetes for what it's good for, rolling out and deploying applications and keeping those things um, up to date. And you know, I you know, some of this is as um, you know, the there's a beta out there, and we have a, a preview of OpenShift planned um, for the general public. When you try OpenShift four, it should feel like Kubernetes. But it should also feel like, oh, wow, this is, these are all concepts I'm familiar with. Oh, and the fixes that, you know, that we've had to put into Kubernetes um, to make uh, running Kubernetes on top of Kubernetes are the same kinds of fixes that we would be putting in to make people's applications run. And so we, it forces us to just go one step further and being serious about Kubernetes. It's not just enough to say that we ship it and give it to you. It's, it has to work before we can even ship it to you. Um, and that sort of commitment you know, everybody loves Kubernetes. Um, a lot of people are scared about operating it. One of the things we think we really can do is make operating Kubernetes as easy as deploying on top of Kubernetes. And we're going to prove that. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, we won't go into it a whole lot of detail, but I know you guys are really committed. Um, we we run some things called OpenShift Dedicated and, and OpenShift Online. And, and some people will use those as ways to to offload, you know, managing their environments if they want or to try all things out. But they're also really good environments, really large environments for us to, to validate that we, you know, the things that we're putting into software actually are, are operatable. So, you know, I know uh, both of you have talked about that at KubeCon and, and other places that, you know, you, you, you have to have the commitment to the technology, but you also have to have the commitment that, um, you know, it's, you know, how to run the software before you actually ask other people to go run it for you. So, and I think that's, that's an important characteristic. Well, and, and it's, um, it's taking, it's taking the ideas that we know work. I mean, these are, you know, it's funny. So much of Kubernetes is, um, you know, it's the learnings of running software at large scale in big companies like Google and Microsoft and Facebook. Um, you know, if you read the literature around um, around managing some of these fleets, most of these aren't, lessons aren't surprising to people that have run, you know, large data center software for the last 10 or 15 years. Um, so we all know what the patterns are, but there's actually kind of a big step between, you know, what the patterns are and you believe in them. Can you actually put them together 
uh, and make them work well together and then do that in a way that you encode that operational thing that does it for you. So but it's if it's something that you have to do all the time um, or something that's really important to you and you don't test it or do it all the time, the first time that you go to do it, you might be surprised. You know, the best example is if you've never done a restore of your backup system, you don't actually have a backup system. You have a very expensive tape drive, right. which is right. it's if you're not trying to recover from failure continuously, you probably don't recover from failure very well. And so one of the things I love about Kubernetes and the way that we've built a lot of these systems is we treat them as, um, you know, failure is a normal thing. Um, you know, a, a big deal for us in OpenShift 4, something we're actually working with right now is um, certificate rotation is a huge point of pain for operations teams because sooner or later, someone forgets to set a calendar notification that um, that the certs are going to expire. And, you know, the certs expire, stuff goes down, people are unhappy. Um, a lot of one of the things we've talked about for a really long time is if you're going to do cert rotation, you do it fast. Um, and so putting that into the product and saying, we're going to rotate, you know, the internal certificates we use every 12 or 24 hours or at some level like that really puts it in your face, which is if it works in the first day, it's going to keep working because it puts those, puts those failure modes right in your face. And I think that's really important. Um, we're trying to put the failure modes of Kubernetes itself uh, right alongside the failure modes that operations teams have been struggling with for years and make it part of the um, part of the normal day to day. Yeah. Um, you know, I know we, uh, both of you, Derek, Derek in particular, um, got up and, and showed a demonstration of, of some of the, the four technology, uh, at KubeCon in Seattle at the, the OpenShift, uh, commons gathering day. We'll put a, a link to the video for that. Um, you know, and as I was learning about it and taking some notes, there was, there was a bunch of terms that were used in there to, to start making some of this capabilities, uh, possible. Um, a couple of them that I had written down, uh, you know, cluster version operator, uh, machine API, um, we're using a technology called cryo, which I know we've talked about a little bit on the podcast before. Derek, I wonder if you can kind of give us just a high level of, you know, what, what are some of these things and, and what are they doing in the context of, you know, we're making the system you know, work, work better with itself. Uh, what does it do to help maybe things like scaling and other stuff? Sure. So maybe, uh, I'll talk about maybe how the nodes and their management change a little bit, and then maybe Clayton, you want to take the second half. So, uh, a lot of stuff we've been maturing in the broader community for a while, and we've been working with the broader community on, uh, increasing the surface area. So, the major thing that you'd see if you look at the thing that's running your workload is we've done a lot to integrate Red Hat CoreOS. And at the end of the day, Red Hat CoreOS is taking some technologies from CoreOS Container Linux, uh, particularly this concept of Ignition, um, and merging them with technologies from, from RHEL. And so Red Hat CoreOS is, is a container-native, optimized, immutable operating system that is built for OpenShift and to be managed by OpenShift. So you're still running a rel kernel, um, but we have a way of uh, affecting change to that immutable host so that the cluster itself can tell that host how it should be configured. Uh, on the runtime side, we've been uh, working in the broader community with others uh, around providing container runtime choice uh, in the community. And we've been particularly vested in a technology called Cryo, which is uh, allowing us to uh, build a Kubernetes purpose-built container runtime uh, whose sole job is to make sure that it can satisfy Kubernetes needs. And so that's our default container runtime before. Um, and then 
uh, as I said earlier, we've built some technologies around Red Hat CoreOS to make it that we can roll out updates to the operating system, as well as uh, affect configuration change from the cluster itself. So that's kind of like some new things that'd be cool to look at from the node level. Uh, when we're working on a cloud uh, and in an environment where we have access to provision and deprovision commute dynamically, you know, as a product uh, positioning standpoint, like we want to be able to bring that value to our users. Uh, and so we've been engaged uh, with the broader uh, Kubernetes ecosystem uh, around what we can do to identify and uh, bring patterns to bear so that Kubernetes itself can manage machines. And so there's a lot of power you can have um, when you provide a cloud agnostic management API for machines in the same way that you have when you have a, a, a management API for pods. Um, and so even working in the upstream uh, with folks from you know Google and VMware and SAP around maturing uh, concepts around a machine API. Um, but we think that this is a really powerful capability that when you see it in action in, in OpenShift v4, uh, if you're running on a cloud, you know that you can take advantage of that cloud and the elasticity that that provides you in the same way that you really love when Kubernetes dynamically provisions storage for you. Like you should really love when Kubernetes provisions compute for you dynamically as well in the face of demand. So those are kind of like the keystone technology areas I would say you see as a V4 operator on the on the machine and node side. And then maybe Clayton, you want to talk a little bit about the control plane and cluster version operator? Yeah, there's, um, yeah, it, it's funny. I was listening to Derek describe it and I was like, oh, I'd love to geek out on some of the things that we've added because you know, they're, they're not novel ideas, but when they come together, there's that moment um, that I think, you know, I, I contrasted to the moment that I had the first time I used Docker where I installed Docker and then I did a Docker run of a different version of Linux and it just worked. And I was like, that's awesome. And, you know, I was able to get a, an, a reproducible environment of a container. And a lot of the things that we're doing in OpenShift 4 Every time I see it happen, I was like, that's awesome. I don't have to think about that anymore. And I know six months from now, I'll just take that for granted, just like we take Docker for granted today, where we're like, oh, you want a reproducible environment? Yeah, just blow it out to the machine. Great. I've got 10,000 copies of it. That's awesome. I think some of the things that Derek was talking about, managing machines, have a lot of those, those same properties, which is, um, oh, three of the machines have a hardware fault. Delete them and get new ones. Oh, um, you know the machine. The machine seems like it's acting weird. Okay, we'll just automatically drain the workloads off of them, move them to a different one, and we'll make that work across every cloud provider exactly the same. And when we move to things like bare metal, um, you know, taking and detecting bare metal failures and automatically, um, you know, taking those machines out of rotation. There's a ton of standardization that should just make this feel like an effortless kind of thing. So, that yeah. digression aside. A uh, lot of really exciting. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, it's it's good. I know. As I was, I mean, I, I'm. You guys are doing the same thing. You're talking through it. You're you're hearing it. I'm I'm listening to it. Um, you know, and, and what I'm what I'm kind of hearing, and I want to make sure I'm I'm connecting the dots the right way. So, you know, we the the platform now better understands the machines. It can it can spin up machines. It it can kind of control machines better. Um, we're spending more cycles um, being more integrated where possible with the the cloud APIs themselves. So whether it's in Azure or AWS or, or VMware or whatever it might be, you know, are, are these, be, do these become sort of the foundations, not just of, you know, 
um, controlling the machines or, or updating them, but also starting to do some of those things that we see in the public cloud where, you know, essentially they're saying, hey, don't don't worry about, you know, having to think about the machines. They'll kind of scale for you. I know you guys showed a, a, a pretty cool set of scaling demonstrations in Seattle. Is that kind of where this is going, where not only do you not think about the machines as much, but, you know, it has some smarts to allow it to scale up and down more dynamically than the kind of the old school way of doing capacity planning? It does. And the 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 idea, I think, is that these APIs exist and they're valuable. We think that the best way for these APIs to be used is in service to your higher level application workloads. Um, if you need another couple, if you need like another couple hundred cores of capacity, yeah, you could go write auto scaling scripts or learn the details of each platform, which the details of each platform aren't something that you should ignore. But some of what we can offer and what we're trying to do is, and we know those APIs pretty well, and we can line them up so that we can optimize when a machine starts from the calls that we make to a uh, virtualization API, whether that's public or private, um, to the way that the machine boots, to the way the machine gets its desired configuration from the cluster, to getting the correct set of security patches onto that machine, and then starting containers as a member of the cluster. Um, For us, it's really about lining all of those up so that if you want flexibility, you have it. If you don't want to think about the machines, you have that. If you want to ensure that all your machines always have the latest security updates um, on a kernel that we support over an extremely long period of time, you have that as well. And so it's the it's not so much the individual parts, it's our ability to bring them all together and make it just a detail, something you don't have to worry about unless you want to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to throw, I know we've 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 talked about a lot of things in this show. I want to throw one last thing uh, at the audience and kind of come back to something we, we hit on earlier. Um we, we've been talking about this this operator technology now since we open sourced it last uh, April or May. Um, obviously, operators under the covers become a very big part of the OpenShift platform itself. You know, you guys mentioned like it's how we're going to you know uh, update things like logging and Kubernetes itself and other stuff. Um, I mean, is that is that same sort of smarts that we're we're you know experience smarts that we're getting around operators to the platform? That extends to what we're going to do with with either customers or ISVs for applications as well, right? Operators aren't just specifically to uh, the platform. I mean, they're going to be relevant to applications as well. Yeah, definitely. So um, I think, uh, uh, you know, operators are really a term about how you manage something at a higher level than just the Kubernetes deployment. And you start to manage it at the the noun level, right? I want an operator for my database that knows how to do backup and restore functionality and can deal with you know, failures appropriately for that platform. Um, and so while we've done a lot in V4 to build uh, operators that know how to manage Kubernetes itself and are uh, tilted towards that worldview, we think um, the right way forward for managing many applications on top of Kubernetes is to uh, put them under an operator platform that is uh, appropriate for that application type. And to that end, and we've been doing a lot of work around a component called the Operator Lifecycle Management uh, Tool. Uh, that's a part of the broader operator framework um, uh, GitHub project that we had open sourced after uh, the CoreOS integration. And basically, the idea here is like how how can we allow third parties and ISVs to offer their services onto the platform and provide all the same 
cloud native style benefits, you'd like to manage those services, but not be tied to any particular environment. So uh, one of the major things you'll see in, in uh, the V4 uh, solution as it comes out is uh, deeper integration with this operator lifecycle management component. And so then end users can come in, say, I want to take advantage of this feature. They install that operator on their cluster and then they can start interacting with the software that that operator knows how to manage in terms of that software's nouns itself. So I can ask for a database. I can ask for a monitoring solution. Um, and then the details about how you manage that thing are uh, kept uh, in the purview of the operator itself and not the admin. Yeah, no, I, I think the, the operator stuff, I think what we're seeing is really powerful. I know we always kind of explain it to, to people as, um, you know, the, the same way that you would ask for a, a database uh, in the public cloud, and essentially you're getting a database as a service. So you care about getting the database. You don't really care about how it's set up, how it runs, how it's maintained, high availability, how it's updated. That's the same sort of concepts that operators are bringing to to applications. And the nice thing is, they will run consistently on on any environment you put them on. So you don't have to think about, well, how does Azure's database as a service run differently than Amazon's versus something I want to build in-house? Like, it will just be the same way. So you want Couchbase as a service, it's Couchbase operator. And I, I, I probably would add one more thing to that, which is like a lot of times when we talk about operators, we think of operators in terms of like end-user application. But then there's also a different class of operator, which is, you know, a lot of people are doing neat things around GPUs in the Kubernetes community, but to integrate GPUs into your Kubernetes solution requires you to integrate at a level of like getting things out to every node so you can run that GPU workload. Um, just managing stuff like that is also great in an operator pattern as well. So I think there's both end user applications and then application enabling operators uh, that I think we'd look to see. Yep. Yeah, I think uh, choice and flexibility are things that we know will be important. The idea of you know, everything as a service comes down to somebody still keeping the lights on. Um, you know, we kind of have that two-prong approach of we want to make it as easy as possible to keep the lights on for arbitrary software running anywhere in the world. And when you do want to, um, to take problems of running and managing software at scale and put them in a box the details from the consumer you know that's something that operators and kubernetes excels at and we'll see more of that in the years to come you know the idea that um just like with linux when suddenly it was easy to have a relatively common environment for building server software um, you see the rise of things like um, open source service component software for the internet, um, the rise of the databases and the web servers, you know, Apache was one of the first big uh, open source projects that really got people introduced to the idea of, you know, it's not just the things you run on it, but if you're going to run like Apache or as, as important as the systems, um, the fact that they're running on Linux and we want, we want running that next set of technologies, whether it's serverless or it's, um, you know, giant data workloads or it's model training as a service, or it is, um, you know, things that people haven't even dreamed up yet. We want to be an essential part of that infrastructure where we hide the details that uh, at this point we have the tooling and technology and, and maturity to just let you not worry about and f let you focus on um, getting things done. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, you know, I, with that, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna kind of wrap it up. I, I feel like on one hand, we've, uh, we've, we've kind of covered a bunch of things in terms of topics. Obviously, like you mentioned, we could go into a lot of depth of them. Um, on the flip side, we're really just sort of scratching the surface of, of some of the new things and and the power of what's coming in OpenShift four. Um, I'll, I'll throw one last thing out for folks that are listening to the show and are like, Oh, I want to learn some more stuff. Uh, both Clayton and Derek, uh, have begun writing a series of blogs that are, that are really kind of laying out our philosophy and, and some more depth around, uh, where we're going with the platform, why we made some choices that we made. Um, the first one came out this week. There'll be more in the coming weeks. I'll put a link in the, in the show notes to it. Um, but, uh, you know, we'd, we'd love to kind of have folks start digging into this thing because um, there is some newness to it, especially if you're a, an existing OpenShift customer. But we think, um, you know, there's just so many powerful things that are that are now come together in terms of the technology being mature. Uh, we've learned things about, you know, what customers want, what the what the technology can do. And um, we will have a, a, a continued series of, of shows and blog posts around this over the next few months until the technology gets to be GA and, and continues to, to grow in uh, 2019. So guys, any last thoughts for folks that are, you know, interested in exploring this or, um, you know, the best ways that the, for them to kind of be playing around with it? Okay. Yeah. So for my, my last thoughts here, I would say like, from my perspective, we've been involved in the Kubernetes community for a long time. Uh, I'm excited about what Kubernetes has become. And I still think Kubernetes has a lot of potential to provide a lot more value in the future. I think what we're looking to do in in OpenShift 4 is to make it easier for enterprises to consume uh, Kubernetes uh, across a variety of footprints that they would want to install it. And so for folks who want to explore OpenShift 4, uh, especially in V4, I would love your feedback about if we're um, hitting the mark and making it uh, uh, possible that you can take advantage of all that the community is producing in your own company's uh, environments. Yep. And um, we, uh, as part of the um, the lead up to launching OpenShift 4, we now have try.openshift.com, which is the um, which will get you started on um, trying out OpenShift and all its uh, and all its awesomeness uh, from what 4.0 is. And there's a guided set of steps actually that tie with that um, that you can see to um, called OpenShift the easy way that Derek has um, spent a lot of time um, going through that focuses on how we are trying to um, to take the concepts that people already have to manage um, and, t- and line them up together and, and to make them be black boxes. Uh, they're details that um, are important and um, we want to let you know what's going on. But really, at the end of the day, um, thinking about these things, uh, it's time to move on from patching systems and um, spending endless amounts of time configuring machines and move up to that higher level of, you know, we're deploying services across fleets of machines and we need to span um, both private and public clouds and um, patches and security updates are things that aren't just a good idea to install, but you need to be able to roll them out safely the moment they're there because we're living in a, an increasingly uh, weaponized um, environment where, you know, everybody has to think about security at some level. And it's our mission to make um, OpenShift and Kubernetes be the most secure software platform um, that we can at, and the best place to run um, your applications, whatever the workload. Yeah. 
Very cool. Well, guys, with that, I think I'm going to wrap it up. I know you're busy. I'm going to let you get back to your days. But uh, thank you so much for the time today. Thanks for being on. And uh, and most importantly, thank you for you know continuing to, to provide leadership in the community. It's uh, Kubernetes has been a fun ride, and it uh, continues to be uh, able to do really, really powerful things. So, folks, with that, uh, thank you to both Derek and Clayton for the time today. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Pod Control Podcast. You can find everything about the show at podcontrol.com, P-O-D-C-T-L, or at Podcontrol on Twitter. We'll talk to you again next week.